the book of Leviticus. It's the third book of the Bible, and it's set right after the exodus of the Israelites from their slavery, when God brought them to the foot of Mount Sinai and invited Israel into a covenant relationship. Now, they had quickly rebelled and broke that covenant, and God had wanted for his glorious presence to come and live right in the midst of Israel in the form of this tabernacle. But Israel's sin has damaged the relationship. So, at the end of the previous book, Exodus, Moses, as Israel's representative, could not even enter God's presence in the tent. The book of Leviticus opens by reminding us of this fundamental problem. It says, the Lord called to Moses from the tent. So the question is, how can Israel, in their sin and selfishness, be reconciled to this holy God? That's what this book is all about, how God is graciously providing a way for sinful, corrupt people to live in his holy presence. Now, let's pause for a second and explore this really important idea that God is holy. It's fundamental to understanding this book. The word holy means simply to be set apart or unique. And in the Bible, God is set apart from all other things because of his unique role as the creator of all, as the author of life itself. And so if God is holy, then the space around God is also holy. It's full of his goodness and his life and purity and justice. So if Israel, who is unjust and sinful, wants to live in God's holy presence, they too need to become holy. Their sin has to be dealt with. Thus, the book of Leviticus. Now, the book has a really amazing symmetrical design. It explores the three main ways that God helps Israel to live in his presence. The outer sections are descriptions of the rituals Israel was to practice in God's holy presence. The next inner sections focus on the role of Israel's priests as mediators between God and Israel. And inside of that are two matching sections that focus on Israel's purity. And then right here at the center of the book, there's a key ritual, the Day of Atonement, that brings the whole book together. The book concludes with a short section where Moses calls on Israel to be faithful to this covenant. Let's dive into the book. The first section explores the five main types of ritual sacrifices that Israel was to perform. Two of these were ways that an Israelite could say thank you to God by offering back to God these symbolic tokens of what God has first given them. Three other sacrifices were different ways of saying sorry to God. So here an Israelite would offer up the lifeblood of an animal while confessing that their sin has created more evil and death in God's good world. But instead of destroying this person, God, of course, wants to forgive them. And so this animal symbolically dies in their place and atones, which means it covers for their sin. And so through these rituals, the Israelites were constantly being reminded of God's grace, but also of his justice and of the seriousness of their evil and its consequences. The second set of rituals lays out the seven annual feasts of Israel. And each of these retold a different part of the story about how God redeemed them from slavery in Egypt and brought them through the wilderness on their way to the promised land. And by celebrating these feasts regularly, Israel would remember who they were and who God was to them. Now, the sections about Israel's priests, you have Aaron and his sons first ordained to enter into God's presence on behalf of Israel. And then in this matching section, we find the qualifications for being a priest. The priests were called to the highest level of moral integrity and ritual holiness because they represented the people before God, but then also represented God to the people. 
Now, we find out why the priest's holiness matters so much back here in this first section. Right after the family of Aaron was ordained, two of his sons waltz right into God's presence and flagrantly violate the rules. And so they are consumed by God's holiness on the spot. It's a haunting reminder of the paradox of living in God's holy presence because it's pure goodness, but it becomes dangerous to those who rebel and insult God's holiness. And so it's important that Israel's priests become holy and also that all of the people of Israel become holy, which is what the next intersections are all about. Chapters 11 through 15 are about the ritual purity required of all the Israelites, and chapters 18 through 20 are about the moral purity of the people. Here's what's underneath all of this purity and impurity language. Because God is holy and he's set apart, the Israelites need to be in a state of holiness themselves when they enter into his presence. This was called being clean or pure. God's presence was off limits to anybody who was not in a holy state, and this was called being unclean or impure. Now, an Israelite could become impure in just a few ways, by contact with reproductive body fluids, by having a skin disease, by touching mold or fungus, or by touching a dead body. Now, for the Israelites, all of these were associated with mortality, with the loss of life, which gets us to the core symbol of all these ideas. You become impure when you're contaminated by touching death so to speak. And death is the opposite of God's holiness because God's essence is life. Now, this is really key. Simply being impure was not sinful or wrong. Touching these kinds of things was a normal part of everyday life. And impurity was a temporary state. It just lasted a week or two and then it's over. What was wrong or sinful was to waltz into God's presence carrying these symbols of death and impurity on my body. Don't do that. Now, the last way of becoming impure was by eating certain animals. And the kosher food laws are found right here in this section. Now, there have been lots of theories about why certain animals were considered impure and off limits to promote hygiene or to avoid cultural taboos. The text just isn't explicit. But the basic point of all of these chapters is really clear. Altogether, these work as an elaborate set of cultural symbols that reminds Israel that God's holiness was to affect all areas of their lives. This corresponding section over here is about Israel's moral purity. The Israelites were called to live differently than the Canaanites. They were to care for the poor instead of overlooking them. They were to have a high level of sexual integrity, and they were to promote justice throughout their entire land. Now, here at the center of the book, we find a long description of one of Israel's annual feasts, the Day of Atonement. Odds are that not every Israelite's sin and rebellion would be covered through the individual sacrifices. And so once a year, the high priest would take two goats. One of these would become a purification offering and atone for the sins of the people. And the other was called the scapegoat. The priest would confess the sins of Israel and symbolically place them on this goat. And then it would be cast out into the wilderness. Again, this is a very powerful image of God's desire to remove sin and its consequences from his people so that God can live with them in peace. The book concludes with Moses calling Israel to be faithful to all of the terms of the covenant. And he describes the blessings of peace and abundance that will result if Israel obeys all of these laws. He also warns them that if they're unfaithful and dishonor God's holiness, it will result in disaster and ultimately 
exile from the land promised Abraham. Now, if you want to see how Leviticus fits into the big storyline, it's helpful to look at the first sentence of the next book of the Bible, Numbers. It begins, the Lord spoke to Moses in the tent. So we can see that Moses is now able to enter God's presence on behalf of Israel. The book of Leviticus, it worked. So despite Israel's failure, God has provided a way for their sin to be covered so that God can live with sinful people in peace. And that's what the book of Leviticus is all about. So 27 uh, chapters of Leviticus summarized in eight minutes. I, I really appreciate those videos because I think they do a nice job uh, summing it all up. Because if you've been following along in your Bible reading, and I, and I know many of you have been, um, you can get a little bit stuck uh, on the details uh, of what's going on. Uh, maybe just me. But uh, if you've got your Bibles, we're going to be in Leviticus 4 today. And uh, I want to encourage you to bring your uh, chronological Bibles, which is on page 191. Uh, is where we're going to be uh, reading uh, the text this morning. Um, and and I, I would imagine that some of you probably came to worship this morning thinking, oh, we're going to talk about Leviticus today, right? I mean, uh, I know uh, Leviticus is probably not most of your favorite books of the Bible. Uh, in fact, m many of us uh, struggle with this book because it is a, a difficult, challenging book. Um, and I just thought for fun we might take a poll. Uh, how many of you, uh, your favorite book of the Bible is the Psalms? Anybody Psalms? Couple? Okay, good, good. Gospel of John. Any John people? Yeah, a lot of people like John. Uh, how about Romans? Okay, Romans, yeah, it's good stuff. Leviticus, how many of you are like, that is my absolute favorite book of the Bible? Yeah, I figured nobody would uh, raise their hand this morning. Uh, probably none of you, your life verse does not come from the book of Leviticus either, right? Um, I mean, it's just one of those books that uh, maybe going through Genesis, uh, you've been plugging along and you're reading and, and you're making some progress and then you get to, well, we got through Job, which was a bit of a slog, right? Uh, and then we came back to Exodus and there's some interesting stuff going on there. And then uh, a couple days ago, you started into Leviticus and you're like, oh my goodness, uh, it's only February. Am I ever going to get through this? And I just want to encourage you um, as you're reading through to be reminded uh, that the Bible tells us that all scripture is profitable. All scripture is God-breathed. It all comes from the inspiration of God, and it's meant for our use. And Leviticus is in God's word. And so we have to take it uh, serious. We have to look at it like every other book in the Bible. In fact, the ancients, uh, the ancient Jewish people, uh, when they were teaching their children uh, about scripture, they began with the book of Leviticus. They didn't start with Genesis or Exodus. Uh, they actually began uh, with the book of Leviticus. And the Midrash is one of the ancient texts, um, the Jewish texts, and they say, little children are pure and they come out and dwell in the place of the teaching of purity. Isn't that great? And so they would teach their kids this whole idea of purity. And I think immediately, even before we start reading this morning, we see how important it is uh, for us uh, as God's people to really understand uh, this whole idea of purity. The other thing uh, that I just want to share before we jump into the text a little bit is Leviticus is actually quoted uh, more than 100 times in the New Testament. So 
Jesus and others are referring back to this book time and time again. This is not a standalone book that was just kind of, you know, lifted up and, you know, people kind of followed along. But they continued to look back to the book of Leviticus because it held some really important parts. And I would actually argue um, that you cannot really understand the New Testament book of Hebrews, uh, which Jeff uh, read to us this morning without a, at least a working knowledge of what's going on in Leviticus. And, and frankly, I would even argue that I'm not sure that you can understand what Jesus did on the cross for us and the importance of his sacrifice, his atoning sacrifice on the cross uh, without understanding, not all the details, but I think broad brushstroke themes of what's going on. And um, I just want to encourage you, don't get lost in the details. Don't get discouraged in the details, but really try and kind of go, okay, what's going on here? What are some themes that are kind of popping up to the surface? And, uh, you know, you might even want to go back and look at these videos uh, from time to time, because I think this one does a, a really nice job. So Leviticus 4, if you've got your Bibles, if you're there, uh, I'm going to invite us to bow our heads and have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, as we prepare this morning uh, to read your word, uh, the book of Leviticus, God, we are mindful that you are good, that you are faithful, and that your word is living and active, and it continues to speak to us today. And so, Lord, sometimes we look at, we read your scripture, and we think, oh my goodness, uh, that happened so long ago. What in the world does that have to do with my life? And so, Lord, uh, open our hearts, open our minds, open our lives. May the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. For you are indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, some of you know that uh, I've been uh, engaged in distance running for a long time, uh, about 42 years actually. And uh, along the way, I've probably fallen a time or two, tripped and fallen as I'm out running. And um, I don't frankly remember really uh, when, if, when I've tripped and fallen, but there are a couple times. And uh, when I was in my 20s, uh, I was attending college. I ran on the cross-country team. Um, I ran year-round, uh, but every now and then, uh, it was a small farming community in Northfield, Minnesota, and I was out in the community, uh, out in the countryside, and there was a set of railroad tracks, and I thought, huh, I'm just going to go run on the railroad tracks for a little while. Now, I am not endorsing, promoting running on railroad tracks. I was in my 20s. I w my brain was not fully developed. Uh, these were not dead railroad tracks. These were live railroad tracks, and so um, one of the things I liked about running on railroad tracks is it, it made me focus, right? It made me focus on the railroad ties ahead of me. And I remember uh, running hour after hour, well, uh, over a course of time, just hours and hours and hours of running on these railroad tracks. Every now and then I would see a train coming at me and then I would get off the railroad track. But I remember thinking to myself, man, if I fall, this is going to go really, really bad. And so in my head, while I'm running to make sure that I don't trip over these railroad ties, um, I'm, just, I'm concentrating really, really hard on my stride, on my feet, and, and all that's going on, and making sure that I don't trip and fall. And to my knowledge, I don't ever remember tripping and falling uh, during that time, but it was just a time of great concentrating on uh, my, uh, my, my running uh, on those railroad ties. Well, fast forward 20 years, 
uh, our family was living uh, in Atlanta, Georgia. And in Atlanta, they don't have many sidewalks. Uh, I happened to find a sidewalk where I was running. And as I'm running along, my shoe caught the lip of a, uh, the sidewalk that was, you know, not flat. And, and I just, I went, I, I went in the air and I, I hit the ground and I went into a roll and I immediately stood up. I just immediately popped up and I just kept running. And it was just really interesting that I think 20 years earlier, all that kind of focus and paying attention to running and thinking, if I ever fall, what's going to happen? And uh, what, what I trained myself to do, I guess, was just to fall well, uh, to just kind of just keep going. It, and I got up and I just kept going. And I thought, that must have been the strangest thing. If anybody saw me, uh, it was almost like, a, like I tried to do it kind of thing. Well, fast forward 15 more years, and uh, I kind of became less focused, if you will, about falling well. And uh, a couple summers ago, Logan and I were uh, biking at Kamlara Park, and it was the end of the day, and I was getting tired, and uh, I lost my balance, and there was a ravine. And rather than roll, I just put my hands out to stop me. It was just a really, I just, really bad idea. And I know I've shared this story with you before, is that the long story short is I ended up breaking some ribs. I just laid there for a while and was in a lot, a lot of pain. But the point of that whole story, as I think about it, is I just didn't fall well. Um, when you're mountain biking, when you're running, when you're out doing different exercises, it's important to know how to fall well. Fast forward to last Monday. I was working on the text, getting ready for today. And uh, I was just really thinking through the text. And if you're following along in the reading, there's lots of blood and guts. And I'm thinking, I wonder if I could come up with a, figure out a sermon illustration for blood. And as I'm running along, uh, all of a sudden, again, I, my shoe hit the uh, sidewalk where there was a little bit of a lip. I went down and my first reaction was to put my hands out, but then I went into a roll. And I, I, popped up fairly quickly, and I was, I, I, at first I was like, oh my goodness, that hurt. I mean, I'm 55. When I was, you know, in my 30s and I would fall, it didn't really hurt, right? You know, we bounced back pretty fast. But my knee was on fire, my ankle hurt, and I'm just like, oh my goodness, uh, that really hurt. And then I got back up and I'm like, that was actually a success because I, I, I fell well. Because after my fall at Kamlara uh, a, a couple of years ago, I said to myself, I need to train myself to fall better. And so uh, when, if you don't like blood, don't close your eyes for a second. Uh, but there was my wound uh, from Monday afternoon uh, that throughout the week uh, that I've just continued to, I feel pretty good about. I feel really, really good about it because uh, I learned how to fall well. And I thought, gosh, that, I think that'll actually even preach. And so this morning, uh, I'm going to call this message Leviticus Lessons in Falling Well. And the reason why I'm calling it Lessons in Falling Well is because Leviticus um, assumes that we're going to fall. It, it, it doesn't say, you know, uh, you know if you ever fall. It's, it's more like when you fall. It's not like if you sin. It's more like when you sin. Now, these words if and when are going to be used back and forth. Uh, but the important part th that I just really want to lift up this morning is we're all going to fall, Right? As Christ followers, we all fall. And so Leviticus invites us into how do we uh, restore? How do we fall well so that we can restore, get back on our feet? 
Um, and, you know, to kind of really think about this, uh, push this metaphor a little bit further, I, what I just want to lay out there for you, because I've talked to a couple people about this, and I think this is one of those books and one of the uh, themes that we can get a little stuck on. And oftentimes in the church, we're talking about salvation, right? And I think sometimes we think that when we trip and fall, we can lose our salvation. And so I just want, I want you to just kind of set your salvation. If you uh, have a relationship with Jesus Christ, if you are in Christ, just to set your salvation on the shelf a little bit. This is not about dying, tripping and falling and dying. This is about tripping and falling and getting a bruise, a scrape, uh, some kind of uh, injury to yourself, uh, spiritually speaking, if you will. It's about restoring and getting healthy again. And so I just want to lay that out there. Now, to give you some context, I just want to reiterate a couple things they said in the video. Um, God has just rescued the Israelites out of slavery. I said this last week, and I'm probably going to say it over and over and over. The order matters. How things happen in Scripture. First, God rescues. Then God gives the rules. Not the other way around. First God rescues, then God gives the rules, and now God is going to talk about restoration when those rules uh, get broken or those rules, things fall apart when we fall, uh, if you will. And so the, the, the book of Leviticus is really asking this question, how do we as sinful, bruised, broken people with skin knees, spiritually speaking, how do we meet with a holy God? And for 27 chapters, Leviticus is going to uh, explain this over and over and over. And I know there's lots of details. And again, I just want to encourage you uh, to not get stuck in these details. And the, all, the whole thing really revolves around the tabernacle. So Winton, if you can put up the tabernacle... There you go. There, there's the tabernacle. So it's about, it's, it takes place over about a month. Uh, they're still at the, mount, the, the foot of Mount Sinai. Uh, Moses has just brought down the Ten Commandments, and now they're going to spend some time. Well, they built the tabernacle, and now they're going to spend some time talking about what do we do? How do we meet God in the tabernacle? And we think about the tabernacle, we might think, well, a tabernacle is kind of like a church, right? It's a, when, it's a place where we meet God, right? And, but the main difference with the tabernacle is it's, it's less like a church than like this or maybe any other churches that you've been a part of. It's frankly more like a slaughterhouse. I mean, the, the tabernacle, we, we've kind of got to set aside this idea that the tabernacle was a place where, you know, we sing some songs, we have communion, you know, the, the floor is clean, the lights are good, you know, everybody smells good, stuff like that. I mean, that was not the tabernacle. The tabernacle truly was a slaughterhouse. Now, I grew up in Austin, Minnesota, and some of you were like, oh, the Spam Museum, right? Right. Yes, the Spam Museum. It's the, the, the headquarters for Hormel Foods. And uh, we could smell Hormel Foods all over Austin, Minnesota. And some of my friends, uh, growing up as a kid, their parents worked at Hormel Foods at the meat processing uh, plant, processing plant, if you will. And every now and then, uh, I would be over at one of my neighbor's uh, houses. His name was James Tisher, and we called him Jamie. And so uh, every now and then, Jamie and I and a couple of our childhood friends were doing something, and all of a sudden, there was this odor that came in the house. And we're like, oh, Jamie's dad is home from work. 
And if you've ever been around farm animals and the processing of farm animals, it's, it's, it's just a smell you don't forget, right? I mean, even today, I, I can smell that. And I'm like, that is the smell of processing of meat from Hormel Foods. That's what the tabernacle was more like. It was a place where animals were slaughtered and all sorts of things were brought together uh, to be lifted as an offering to God. And we're going to, you know, the, as we read through it, we think so much of it just sounds strange to our ears because it's just not the world in which we live. It was very bloody. It was dirty. And I just want to encourage you to, again, not get stuck in the details, but to look at these themes of how can we as sinful people connect with the holy gods. Okay, so there's my setup. Leviticus 4, uh, beginning with verse 32. If someone brings a lamb as their sin offering, they are to bring a female without defect. Now, you're probably reading this going, okay, I've read like 75 versions of this already, right? I mean, you're reading along in Leviticus and you're like, okay, Brian, what's, what's, what's the deal here? It's just, you know, this animal slaughter it, this animal slaughter it, this animal slaughter it, uh, lots of blood here, you know, what, what's, what's the deal with all that? And what I want to say is, you know, what we want to really key in on is, are two things. Is one is it's an offering. It's a sin offering. How do sinful people connect with the holy God, rebuild that relationship with the holy God? And it's by bringing an offering to God. But not just any offering. It says an animal, uh, a female without defect. And this is a reminder for the Israelites. And I, I think it's a reminder for us too that God wants us to bring our very best in our relationship with him. Because that's who God is. He brings his very best, which is holiness and perfection. We're called to bring our very best too. And I've been around the church for a long time, and I know many of you have too, but I just got to tell you, sometimes I feel like we as Christians, we bring our leftovers to church. Our leftover time, our leftover resources, our, our leftover energies, our leftover whatever. But time and time again, according to the book of Leviticus, and I think this is 100% applicable to us today, we are called to be in a relationship with God and we are to bring our very best. When we gather together as God's people, we're to bring our A game. We're not here to just show up on Sunday and mail it in. We're not here as a community to just kind of, oh, whatever, we're just going to do whatever. No, God says, bring your very best. Bring it all. Bring your heart. Bring your very best to me. And so I want to encourage us to really think about that. And this, it's all under this umbrella of God's holiness, that God brings his very best, that he is set apart. And Leviticus uses this word holy more than any other book in the Bible. I mean, just, you might want to even write that in the margins of your note. This holiness is a key theme of this book. And, and uh, Moses, God, absolutely is serious about communicating to us time and time again about God's holiness. Well, what is holiness? Well, as they said in the video, holiness is simply being set apart. Holiness is being set apart. 
And for God to be set apart, it means that he is not ordinary, he is not common, that uh, he is divine, that he is uh, beautiful, um, that he, his very essence is love, he's omniscient, he's all-knowing, he's om- omnipotent, he's all-power, he, he's, he, he, he's in, in beyond space and time. He's everywhere. And so God, in his essence, is holy. He is set apart. And because he is so different than you and me, we, we look at him and, and we, we, wor- we magnify him and we, we worship God because that's who he is in his holiness, in his set-apartedness, uh, if you will. And we look at this idea uh, of, of God and his holiness and, and we're both drawn to it We're drawn to God's holiness, but we're also repelled by God's holiness. Because on the one hand, we love the the wonder and the awe and the awesome and the beauty uh, of who God is. But on the other hand, it's just like, whoa, it's just too much, right? And the the metaphor I want to give you this morning is uh, the sun, the sun up in the sky. And I think in the wintertime, uh, we especially appreciate the sun, we look at the sun uh, and experience the sun. We feel the sun. We're like, oh, the sun is good, right? The sun feels really, really good. We like the warmth. We like the light. Whenever the sun pops out on a cloudy day, I just go outside and stand in front of the sun because I just, I love the feeling of the sun. It just, it picks me up. But the thing about the sun, for all its, its goodness and wonder and the ways in which it, it cares for us, that it's also deadly, because if we were to try and get closer to the sun, if we were to get just 3 million miles from the sun, the temperature would be about 244 degrees. So we would die, right? So as much as we love the sun, we appreciate the sun, and as much as the sun gives us life, the closer we get to it, it's make no mistake, the sun is also dangerous, and we get burned up by the sun. So we've got this mixed relationship with uh, the sun in terms of uh, how, how we relate to it. And this is the same thing with God. You know, most of us, I think we think about God and Jesus and just like, oh, love and joy and peace. But then we get closer and closer and we're like, oh, I feel exposed and I feel sinful and kind of all those things. And so we're not quite sure what to do. And and so as we're thinking about Leviticus and this whole idea of uh, lessons in falling well, if you will, is focus on God's holiness. We need to just always be focused on God's holiness. And we sang about that uh, a little bit this morning as well. And not only does God holy set apart, if you will, but he calls us to be holy too. He called the Israelites to be holy. Later in the New Testament, in 1 Peter, Peter is going to say, hey, be holy. And so we think to ourselves, well, what does that mean? It literally means be set apart. Be different from the normal going on around you. And as we look at the culture around us today, that's what's normal. That's what's ordinary. That's what's common. And as Jesus followers, we are called to not be that. We are called to be separated. We are called to be set apart for God's purpose. In, in the Old Testament, there was always this struggle, this tension for the Israelites, God's people, to continue to go to new places, to experience new things. And over and over and over, God said to the Israelites, do not 
assimilate. Don't worship all the other gods in the new land that you go to. Don't practice all the things that they are practicing. Be different. I've called you to be different. And most of the time, Israelites got it wrong. They sinned. They, they strayed. They were ordinary. They were common. So the issue, again, I think is just the same for us today. Are we different than the culture? Are we different than the ordinary world around us? Or are we holy? Or where are we at on that continuum of following after God, being separated for his purposes so that we can be a witness to the world of God's goodness and God's faithfulness? All right, verse 33. They're there to lay their hand on its head, uh, that lamb, and slaughter it for a sin offering at the place where the burnt offering is slaughtered. Then the priest shall take some of the blood of the sin offering with his finger and put it on the horns of the altar of the burnt offering and pour out the rest of the blood at the base of the altar. Well, there it is. Then the blood shows up, right? And again, if you've been reading through Leviticus, you're like, oh my goodness, how much, you know, how, how many times do they talk about blood in this book? Well, since you asked, 88 times the word blood shows up in the book of Leviticus. It's just like this book is just blood and guts over and over and over. It's this idea um, and there's blood just everywhere. It just, it, I mean, you finish your reading and you're just like, oh, that was just gross, you know? There's just blood and guts everywhere. Why blood? Why is it so important, this whole idea with blood? The ancients believed that there was life in blood. And that when someone was dying, that blood was literally running out of them. And, I, you know, in many ways, they weren't that far off. Right, Rich? I mean, there is, is there life in blood? Yeah, I mean... With, yeah, without, without blood, we're, we're going to die, right? There is no life. And so there's this very key idea that in the blood is life. And so substitute the word blood for life. And so life was brought to the altar. And when they looked at this blood being shed, being poured out, all they could think of was death, like, much like what we think of, Right? And they knew that in a sin offering that this idea of blood being poured out was because of a, an animal was dying or, or was dead. And what the, they were equivalent there was, or what they were tying together was this whole idea of, is that sin leads to death. When we sin, I mean, and Paul tells us this in the New Testament, right? For the wages of sin is death. Yeah, and it's this equivalent to this tying together that when blood is poured out, and so that what they're doing uh, literally is acknowledging that their sins um, lead to death, and it's led to the death. And we, we read these, and I don't know about you, I didn't grow up on a farm, but I've been around enough animals, and I think, man, what did that sheep ever do to deserve death? What did that lamb ever do? I mean, they had a short life, they're innocent, they're cute, Right? But they were slaughtered and their, and their blood is poured out. And I think that's the whole point. Is that these are innocent animals that have done nothing wrong. And yet their blood is poured out and spilled. And what that's doing for the Israelites and what it ought to do for us is to remind us 
of how severe, how significant the consequences of our sin are. Our sin leads to death. And there needs to be this payment on the altar. And to just to kind of carry this a little further, remember the, the, uh, the Israelites when they were slaves in Egypt and God had a big master plan to rescue them with Moses. And God said to the Israelites, here's what I want you to do. Kill a, a, an animal and put the blood on the doorpost of your home. And when the angel comes through, all the firstborn will be killed, except those who are covered, the doorposts are covered with blood. And so there's this strong imagery, this strong idea that in the blood there is life. In the blood there is protection that covers over the people. And that's literally how the Israelites were rescued, by the blood of the lambs that was over the doorpost. And so this idea doesn't go away, it just continues to come up over and over and over. And I know we live in a day and time where we continue to look at sin and we continue to play it down and talk about how sin doesn't really matter and the consequences of sin don't really matter and we refer to our own sin as mistakes, right? We're no longer sinners, but now we are mistakers and oops, I did that. And well, gee, isn't everybody just a sinner too? And, and we have so soft-pedaled sin in, the, in our society and in the church, folks. I don't think we take our sin in the church very seriously either. And what the, what's going on here, Leviticus, is God is saying, your sin is really a problem. And it takes the, the shedding of innocent blood to cover so that the relationship can be restored. So when we are stumbling, when we are falling, not only do we need to focus on uh, God's holiness, we cannot take our eye off the importance of our own sinfulness and the consequences of our sinfulness. It's like sometimes if I were to like have a bottle of poison and I were to just to show up, you know, show you this bottle of poison, everybody looks at the poison, I were to take the, the poison label off and slap on another label that says, you know, orange juice or something and give it to you. It's still poison, right? And that poison still kills. No matter how we label our sin, sin still kills. And that's what's going on here, uh, I think, uh, with all that's going on. And we see this idea of blood uh, circulating throughout the scripture. Uh, uh, theologians call this the scarlet thread of redemption. Scarlet thread of redemption. That the blood throughout it all it had carries this idea of life and protection of atonement over the people and it becomes this payment for what uh, people are experiencing now just to kind of again make this a little bit kind of modern day example for you this is an insurance town right most of you guys get insurance understand the whole insurance industry now let's just say hypothetically you were in a car accident emma just hypothetically right and, you know, everybody's okay. There's the car accident. Everybody else, okay, nobody's hurt. And so you go to your insurance company and you file a claim, right? And your insurance company says, yeah, we're not paying. Or like, oh, okay. So you go to the other insurance company of the other driver and they're like, yeah, we're not paying either. Well, who's going to pay for the damage to the vehicle? You are, Right? When there has been damage to a car, 
to your life, to a relationship, to whatever, someone has to pay. And it's either the insurance company, zuh, or it's you. Someone's got to pay. Otherwise, the vehicle remains damaged. In this world, whenever we sin, our sin has to be dealt with. There has to be a payment in order for uh, it to be restored, the relationship to be restored. And Leviticus is all about this idea is that God is promising to fix it. He's got a plan to fix our brokenness, our sinfulness. Uh, and I just, you know, did an image there of, uh, you know, kind of a payout, if you will, uh, for this. Can we go to the payout? There we go. I mean, this is this idea of somebody's got to fix it. All right, we're going to go back up, uh, Winton. Then uh, they shall remove all the fat, verse 35, uh, just as the fat is removed from the lamb of the fellowship offering, and the priest shall burn it on the altar on top of the food offerings presented to the Lord. In this way, the priest will make atonement for them for the sin they have committed, and they will be forgiven. So it's this idea that God is offering uh, to, to take care of things, that God says, hey, I'm going to pay out. I'm going to restore this relationship. I am holy. God's good and faithful. We are sinful and broken people, but God says, I'm going to bridge the gap. I'm going to do the payout. And so the third thing is we're thinking about uh, the book of Leviticus and falling well is this idea of God's faithfulness. When we sin, when we fall, as we're falling, remember God's faithfulness in the midst of it all. So there's my, my three ideas, I guess, as it relates to the book of Leviticus in terms of lessons in falling well. Now, just to kind of continue with the story a little bit uh, that I think is really important for us. For the next 500 years, the Israelites carry around the tabernacle. This is the place where whenever the laws, wherever the rules were broken, they met God in the place of the tabernacle. Uh, there at Hormel Foods, at the slaughterhouse, and there are just lots and lots of blood is being shed for 500 years as they're moving around. This whole idea of atonement, of God making things right uh, in the payout. And then 500 years later, uh, David says, hey, I have an idea. Let's build a more permanent structure. And that's where the temple shows up in Jerusalem. And so for the next 500 years, they continue to do the same thing. Lots of blood, uh, lots of uh, remembering uh, the sacrifices. And folks, we're, we're going to just continue to see this blood and animal sacrifice throughout the Old Testament. So if you're squeamish uh, with it in Leviticus, get used to it. It just continues to go and go and go. And then uh, the temple was destroyed uh, for about 70 years. And then they built a new temple. Uh, those 70 years, there were no sacrifices because they didn't have a, uh, they didn't have a tabernacle and they didn't have a temple. And then, then they had this temple again. They built the second, what's known as the second temple. And the second temple is the temple on which when Jesus shows up and they are sacrificing all sorts of animals and all sorts of things going on. And people are like, oh my goodness, for the love of Pete, are we ever going to get over this animal sacrifice and just this whole idea of meeting with God in this place and this whole idea of just slaughterhouse and blood and innocent animals being killed. There's a great verse um, in uh, uh, the Old Testament about 600 years before Jesus shows up. It, it's uh, from Jeremiah 31. 
Jeremiah's trying to give the people some hope uh, as things were just really going bad. He says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And so what Jeremiah is doing is he's offering hope. Folks, this whole idea of meeting in the tabernacle, of meeting in the temple, it, I'm going to lay out something new. But this, in the new, te- uh, in the new uh, temple, the second temple, just hundreds of years, generation after generation, more and more commitments. And then uh, onto the scene steps Jesus. And early on in his ministry, John the Baptist starts to give clues about where this is going. This whole idea of Leviticus and the blood of the lamb. John the Baptist sees Jesus, uh, and it's recorded in John 1. He says, the next day John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him. He said, look, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And all the Jewish people who knew and understood the book of Leviticus and the importance of those uh, sacrificial uh, dedications and offerings brought forward, all the blood, their minds are immediately starting to race. What in the world is John the Baptist talking about? But they are locked into the book of Leviticus. This is strange. And again, if we don't understand Leviticus, this means nothing to us. This is all in the context of uh, Jewish history and culture as they are practicing their sacrifice uh, in the tabernacle in the temple. And then we read uh, as we go through the Gospels where Jesus is butting head with the religious people uh, time and time again. And he's constantly referring back, Jesus is constantly referring back to the Old Testament and the sacrifices. uh, And he's having these conversations with them. And at one point in time, uh, as they're they're butting heads, uh, Jesus says this to the religious people. If you really believed Moses, you would believe me. Because what he wrote, he wrote about me. So what Jesus says to the religious people is, Moses wrote about me. And you're probably thinking, when did Moses write about Jesus? What Jesus is saying, it has everything to do with the book of Leviticus. Jesus is saying, I came into the world to be the lamb who was slain so that the relationship with God could be restored. This is where God meets his people in the new covenant. Not in the tabernacle, not in the tent, but through the person of Jesus. And it's rooted in this idea of Leviticus. And then Jesus says something even stranger in John 6. I tell you the truth, anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise that person on the last day. Referring to Leviticus, Jesus is explaining again this this bloody idea of the importance of sacrificing, pouring out his blood on the altar so that we can be in relationship with him. Over and over and over, when you read through the New Testament, when you've got a really good working understanding or just even a general understanding of Leviticus, you see how Jesus is referring back to Leviticus and pointing to himself over and over and over. And then, of course, we get to Holy Week. And on during, during Holy Week, of course, there was lots and lots of blood that was spilled. John 19 records it this way. Then Pilate had Jesus flogged with a lead-tipped whip. The soldiers wove a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they put a purple robe on him. 
the blood does not go away in the Old Testament. It continues on in the New Testament. And there's this imagery of the blood being splattered, the blood being poured out on the altar for you and for me so that the relationship could be restored. And by the way, that the blood of an innocent man, that's what's really key here, folks. Not just any blood, but someone who absolutely did not deserve this. And then John continues, Then Pilate turned Jesus over to be crucified. Carrying the cross, he went to the place called Golgotha. They nailed him to the cross. More blood and more sacrifice for you and me. And I just want to close here um, by, frankly, where Jeff started this morning, reading from the book of Hebrews. I would just even encourage you in the margin of your book of Leviticus is right, see Hebrews because the two, they just go back and forth. Leviticus in the Old Testament, Hebrews in the New Testament and they just, they explain one another so beautifully that this innocent blood, uh, the New Testament writer is going to write, uh, is going to make this strong connection between the Old Testament sacrifice and Jesus. So this is Hebrews 9, uh, beginning with verse 11. So Christ has now become the high priest over all the good things that have come. He has entered the greater, more perfect tabernacle in heaven, which was not made by human hands and is not part of the created world. With his own blood not the blood of goats and calves. He entered the most holy place once and for all time uh, and secured a redemption forever. Under the old system, the blood, and, uh, the blood of goats and bulls and ashes of the heifer could cleanse people's body from ceremonial impurity. Just think how much more the blood of Christ will purify our consciences from the sinful deeds that we uh, can worship the living God. For by the power of the eternal spirit, Christ crucified, no, Christ offered himself to God as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. That is why he is the one who mediates this new covenant between God and people so that all who are called can receive the eternal inheritance God has promised them. For Christ died to set them free. Christ died to set us free from the penalty of sins that we have committed under the first covenant. See, without the understanding the book of Leviticus and all the blood and all the sacrifice, all the ritual that's going on, we could easily read the book of Hebrews and go, ah, I don't really get it. Sounds like a lot of imagery, sounds like a lot of metaphor. But when we read, when we step into the book of Leviticus, it invites us into the very presence, this just blood and guts and gore and understanding of how personal this is and how important it is to walk with God and to bring our very lives as an offering to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for this book of Leviticus, this book, Lord, that both confounds us, grosses us out, um, but also, God, just illuminates so much uh, throughout the New Testament and, and most certainly your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you, God, that uh, all scripture is truly inspired by you, that it is God-breathed, and that it is useful for our use. And so, Lord, as we go through our day, as we go through our lives, um, and, and Lord, as we, as we fall 
as we continue to uh, not do what you have called us to do, but as we fall into sin, God, remind us of the ways in which we can fall well and reestablish and reconnect with you uh, each and every day. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer.